Previously on the Dating After Divorce Survival Guide. The trap was lunch. And I really wasn't worried about whatever was going to happen after that. Welcome to the Dating After Divorce Survival Guide. After getting his master's degree and getting cursed out, his second master's and getting kicked out, Eric Payne decided to pursue his doctorate and getting his life right and staying in his own lane. But upon getting all his degrees, he realized he was a fish out of water in this new dating landscape. Eric was 28 years old when he met his ex-wife and was newly divorced at 43. The world had changed considerably since the days of StarTac beepers, Motorola flip phones, and Yahoo Chat. It is vicious out here in these new streets where taking pictures of yourself all day long with a phone and posting them on the internet is actually a thing. The Dating After Divorce Survival Guide is the story of Eric's journey from love and marriage to divorce to dating to hopefully love and marriage once more. I wasn't sure what I was doing. I genuinely wasn't. Yeah, I was mad. Yeah, I wanted to get me some. Yeah, I was upset. Yeah, this woman from my gym was right for the picking. But I still wasn't sure what I was doing. And I wasn't sure I even wanted to do it. But I was guided by, I don't know. Sounds almost silly. Guided by my hormones. Guided by, but more probably because I'm too old for that, I think. But I think I was more guided by my urges. I was guided by just emotion and 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 anger and just wanting what I wanted when I wanted it and just not caring, not giving a you-know-what, not giving a flying you-know-what, not giving a pile of you-know-what. I just wanted to be kissed on. I wanted to be held. I wanted to be loved on. And I wanted to get some. I mean, shit. <laughs> yeah. Met her on a Thursday. Sunny afternoon. Cumulus clouds, 84 degrees. She was brown. Said she wanted to talk about my mission. My passion. My product lines. Listen to my past lives. Talk about divorce. I used to blog. We met at one of my favorite holes in the wall. Nothing fancy. We had Mexican. Took her on long walks where roses grew. Talked about Moses and our mamas in Atlanta. Reparations, blue colors, memories of shell top Adidas, black folk. She was fresh like summer peaches. She actually was a Georgia peach. Sweet on my mind like block parties and penny candy. Us was nice and warm. No jacket, no umbrella, just warm and soft like velvet tracksuits. At night we would talk till the stars took full flight in the sky and I would physically give her each and every one, telling her she was worthy and she deserved it. I could see she was getting dizzy from her laughter and I was comfortable being goofy. We goofed off, a lot. Better than love, we made delicious. I had her tongue-tied, distracted, at some points not even listening to me because she was just staring. 
I could hear her grown and sexy voice in my thoughts and her beautiful voice in my ears. I wanted to be her sharp, her horn section, her boom, and her bib. And somewhere in there, there sprang love. So the trap was set, and the trap was meeting up to talk about work stuff, ideas, ways to reinvigorate my career, services that I could offer the general public as a marketer, designer, creator, writer, photographer, blogger, podcaster, before I launched this podcast. But it wasn't a trap. It was legitimate. I actually did want the help. So we met up at a Mexican restaurant, nothing fancy, a little hole in the wall that I used to go to. and But the food was great. And food is always great at holes in walls. And so we talked and we talked about uh, the work. We talked about her work. We talked about my potential desires, where I could go. She had seen some of my work because I had emailed it to her. She had wasn't aware that I was as, I guess, accomplished as I was. And she asked me a very interesting question. She said, you don't need my help. Like, what are you doing? I said, what are you talking about? She said, you're, you're an OG. You know how to do all this stuff. You know, like, you don't need help. You don't need help doing this stuff. All you have to do is put yourself out there. Eric, you got mad. You have an incredible body of work. Why, why, does, why does nobody know? Huh. That question kind of threw me and caused me to look and stop and think and wonder and respond with, I don't know. I mean, but I did know. I knew. I knew. I had made myself small. I had learned to make myself small. I had gotten comfortable with making myself small. I had gotten in the practice of not believing in me. I didn't necessarily believe that I couldn't, but I had taught myself that I shouldn't. So I didn't. Over and over and over and over and over again. So when that question was posed to me, I didn't have an answer. At least not one that was going to make sense to someone who was looking for a black and white answer. Because that was the muddle, the muck that my mind had made of my life. Due to trauma, due to disbelief, due to the fact, you know, due to not being bolstered up by like-minded individuals. Yeah, I had my tribe, but my tribe kept me out of trouble. My tribe was comprised of accountants and fundraisers and educators. They didn't know nothing about what I did. I wasn't in a like-minded community of creatives who were going to hold my feet to the fire and say, like my tumble, no, 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 and not let me rest on my laurels or drag my feet. People figured I had it, so I had it. And even my best friend, who's pretty much my number one motivator, my Maverick Carter, he's the Maverick Carter to my, my LeBron James, if you will. He's an HR exec. So in that creative space, there's nobody there to emotional space now I got it but creative space back then there was nobody there like bolstering me along so when she asked the question of me I didn't have an answer I didn't know what to say I I sort of just yammered through my answer and she took what I said whatever so the conversation got very uh comfortable got very you know jovial got very and this was like our first time I think Like, we had been talking on the phone, but this was our first time meeting up. And she was in a dope velvet tracksuit. And 
I think it was green or olive green, and she had some pumas on that were either red or maybe some sort of plum. But basically, it looked very natural. It looked like a, a vegetable, maybe even a eggplant, like but in reverse because the she was wearing green and her shoes were you know eggplanty colored, not the other way around where everything was eggplanty and the stem was green like a vegetable. So she looked very natural. She had short hair at the time and wore funky glasses. And this is our first time hanging out outside of the gym. Now, we had hung out after classes, after our spin classes, but we were all sweaty, funky, blah, 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 going to get food, cold, wet, damp, dewy, and just ready to go home after that. This was the first time we had hung out where she was made up and I made an effort to look like something. And we had a really nice time. And that day extended well into the afternoon. And before the afternoon was over, I kissed her and turned my gray soul patch pink <laughs> uh, with her lipstick. I don't think I had ever seen that before. I didn't, it didn't dawn on me that, you know, the, the transfer of lipstick actually colored your hair. I mean, I was able to wash it out, but I was looking kind of crazy for a little bit. Anywho, and then first strike net led to, you know, it began to escalate. It, we began to spend more time together, and each time ended with a kiss, a deeper kiss, a longer kiss, a grab, a pull, a tug, whatever, all of that kind of stuff, until finally she ended up at my house on a rainy night. And... We were watching TV, listening to music. One thing led to another. There was a storm, and we were on the couch, and we didn't leave the couch for a long time. And there was no going back from that point. And oddly enough, she actually got a call from her child in the middle of things. And she kind of was in that space, as I know that many women, I'm sure, are like, well, I want to do something for me. I want to be for me. And I, like, I want to be for me. I want to have something for me, for crying out loud. That was something my ex-wife used to say in her moments of frustration as a mom and as a wife. And what I said to her, this person that I was with in my living room was, hey, listen, that's your son. I'm here. There'll be other times. Go home. Be with your son. He needs you more than I need you. He needs you more than you need this. Go home. It's all good. So she went home. And I meant that. I wasn't saying that for points or for credits or whatever. I meant that. So she went home. And when I went to bed that night, oddly enough, I didn't feel anything. And I was at a point of no return because I had gone backwards on what I believed in. I was sure I had gone backwards on what I, my faith was, had been teaching me not to do. And I went to bed feeling nothing. I didn't feel good. I didn't feel bad. I didn't feel guilt. I didn't feel shame. I didn't feel elation. I felt nothing. The only thing I felt was that if given the opportunity, I would do it again. Hey, how you doing? My name is Eric Payne, and welcome to my Patreon page. So I am currently the host of the Dating After Divorce Survival Guide. Your support here in this community is going to do the following. It's gonna allow me to produce 
exclusive content for the Dating After Divorce Survival Guide. It's also going to allow me to launch a bunch of other content series. Life of a Divorced Dad, Fatherhood in Black, and something that I'm very excited about, a docu-series called Extraordinary People. Additionally, your support on this page will give you access to a quarterly subscription box and you're going to get first dibs and the cheapest prices on tickets for live events. Now, of course, nothing is live at this point, but when the world opens back up, things will be live. So in the meantime, they're going to be virtual events and they're going to be very fun. I want to have it. They're going to be very fun. Did I say fun? Yeah, very fun. Yeah, that's well, we're going to have fun. Stay tuned. Hope to see you on the page. Thank you. The thing about vulnerability is that if it's received or embraced or, I don't know, nurtured, then affection blooms from that experience. We spoke every day. We talked about what mattered to us. We talked about the brokenness of our relationship. She spoke about the brokenness of her marriage. I spoke about the brokenness of my marriage. She talked about the hopes and dreams of her career. I was talking about hoping and dreaming to have a career once again and figuring out what it was I was trying to do and who I wanted to be when I grew up as Eric 5.0 or whatever version of Eric I was on at the moment. We talked every day. We talked all day long. We cracked jokes. We talked about music. We talked about everything. We talked about our children. We just talked. And it was more that than any amount of activity, physical intimacy, whatever, it, physical intimacy that bred a connection that was becoming dangerously close. One that had the potential to go nowhere fast. The physical intimacy was there, yes. But what was more problematic was the emotional intimacy that I was experiencing with her. She was understanding and getting me better than anyone had. Potentially better than my ex-wife. Meaning what my ex-wife has had and has was years of experience with me. So she knew me backwards and forwards. Whether I believe she knew me, you know, internally, she definitely knew me behaviorally. But this particular individual was really beginning to become a cultivator of me, a steward of me, and a student of me. And I think conversely the same was happening on my end, going towards her, vice versa. And it was becoming more and more problematic for me I started to become in conflict with myself because it, it was just a road to nowhere. And why nowhere? Because, yeah, when I reached for the phone, she was always there. But when I reached for her, she was not there because she physically was not with me. She physically, and I'm using this term lightly, she physically belonged to someone else. Regardless of the status of their relationship, they belong to one another, legally, based on commitment, based on whatever it was that led them to be together. Until they were no longer together, they belonged to one another. And I was on the outside of that, looking in. I was an outsider. I was an interloper. I was someone that didn't belong. And I believe in my spirit, I started to recognize that even though my 
physical whatever was momentarily okay with it. But I was only momentarily okay with it. The rain was falling and, and slowly and sweetly, then it turned into a storm raging against my windows and stinging my eyes between that and my revenge. I could not see that I became her voodoo priest and then I became her faithful concubine. Wide open, loose like boughs after collard greens, the mistake was made in my living room. Love slipped from my lips, dripped down my chin, and landed in her lap, and slid between her thighs, and us became new. Now me non-clairvoyant, and loving and grown, made the coochie easy and the obvious invisible. The rain was falling and I couldn't see the season changing and the vibe slipping off its axis. Our beautiful melody became wildly staccato. The rain was falling and I could not see that nothing was changing. And I was still just as single as I was the day I met her and left to drown in my loneliness. Cumulus clouds, 84 degrees, soft, sweet, velvet melodies. She invited me to a concert. It made perfect sense for her to invite me to a concert. I was her boo thing on the side and I wanted to go to the concert with her I wanted to spend time with her I wanted to listen to the artist with her have the shared experience but she said something about her husband she mentioned something about him in passing maybe something to the effect that that was something that they used to do or haven't done in a while or something like that and I was in my attic doing something I don't remember what and I remember thinking to myself then all of a sudden, all at once, all of it just felt so ridiculous. It felt silly. So I say to myself, what do I look like going to a concert with a married woman and she's not mine? Now, I could go to a concert with a married friend. I can go to a concert with somebody else's girlfriend. Because if we're cool, then we're cool. But if I'm going as the boo thing on the side, okay, I'm having this experience. And then yet again, regardless of what may transpire afterwards, I have nothing to show for it. I have the experience, but it ends because that person goes home and she kept going home. And I was falling backwards on the very thing that I hated the most. And then here was what was worse. All I knew was what she was telling me. I am not suggesting that what she was saying about their deteriorating relationship was not inaccurate. I'm sure it was, but suddenly, and it's, and it, when I say suddenly, I mean conviction wise, because I was in this relationship status with her and not just messing around status. I didn't feel good about being that dude that was on the other side of that dude's life. I remember when I was married and I remember when I, my marriage was collapsing and I remember the suspicion that I had. I remember the hysteria, the paranoia that I had. To this day, I don't know if there was somebody there occupying the space in my ex-wife's heart while I was trying to claw my way back in for validation. I don't know. I don't ask. We're great. 
but I don't, we don't talk, that's just something that I don't talk about. It's ancient history. But I know that back then, when I was dealing with my friend from the gym, that I was still hurting, smarting, in pain from my perceived betrayal by my ex-wife. And one of the promises that I made for good karma, for my own mental health, for my own peace, for my own, you know, building and moving forward, since I knew I wasn't going to get the kind of closure that I wanted or needed from her, the way I kind of compensated for that was I started to create structures for myself so that I could function and live with myself. And one of the promises that I made to myself, forget all this waking up in bed by myself, I was never going to do to a man willingly what was done to me. I don't give a damn what he was doing to her because that's their business. I am not going to swoop in as some kind of savior to someone and then put a dagger in someone else's back because that's ultimately what you're doing. Regardless of what you're doing for this person, you're putting a dagger in the other person's back. If they're not aware, if they are aware, if the situation isn't clean, what's a clean situation? Well, you're divorced. You're moving on. You're living your life. You're doing you. But that situation wasn't clean. It was messy. There was a having cake and eating it, eating it too, regardless of the different ways it was phrased, regardless of the rationale, regardless of whatever was told to me, there was time being spent with me. There was time being spent with him, whether that was in conflict, whether that was in pain, whatever. Cake was being had and cake was being eaten too. And for me, I was going back on one of the biggest principles I had ever established for myself I didn't think I was going to go to hell or anything like that. I actually didn't really have too much of a like that kind of visceral, emotional, Christian-based feeling that used to rule my life. And that bothered me a little bit because I was like, well, if I don't care, does that mean I don't care about God? Does that mean that I, my faith isn't what I thought it was? No, I don't think that that's it. I just think that as a grown man, I've just moved into a space where I know what works for me and I know what doesn't. And I'm willing to take the consequences for my actions, accept the consequences for my actions, and I understand that everything does not have to be drenched in some sort of like heavy, super deep spiritual experience. A lot of times we ask Jesus and God and all the rest of that for help when we know exactly what to do. And a lot of times we blame Satan for all of our inequities and all of our bad behavior when we're acting bad all by ourselves. I, I passed. I decided I wasn't willing to go to the concert with her. She was not happy about it, but I had to do what worked for me. I was a hypocrite. I had already fallen back on my ways. I had already opened up a can of worms, a Pandora's box. And somehow, some way, I had to close it. So it was time to put her feet to the fire because I hadn't really felt this way about anybody since my ex-wife. And the situation just wasn't serving me in the way that I wanted to be served. And, you know, I kind of stum started stumbling into this space where I wanted what I wanted because I wanted it. There was no justification for why I wanted it other than the fact that I wanted it. I'd spent my entire life wanting or putting my wants on the back burner. Why? Because it was the Christian thing to do, or so I was told. Why? Because other people convinced me that their needs or wants were more important than mine, um, making me almost feel silly for wanting what I wanted. 
that I wanted what I wanted without justification, but the justification for wanting what I wanted was the fact that I, Eric Payne, wanted it. You don't have to have a reason for wanting what you want. So I invited her out to dinner, and we were eating, and I made my play. Hey, listen, I really like you. I really like you. And I'd like for this to turn into something more than what it is. But you have a man. You have a husband. You have somebody that you go home to every day. You know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, how do I keep ending up in these situations? To which she said that she was not ready to leave her situation. She had said this to me before in our dealings. But, you know, now we're sitting face to face across a table from each other and I'm like turning the screws to her. Well, why not? Because there's a certain amount of financial stability that I need to have as a single parent that I'm about to be a single mom, blah, blah, blah. And I can't do that if I leave now. We need to pay off these bills. We need to get this stuff in order. We need to get our house in order before we leave our house. Now, the only reason why that didn't jive with me personally, and that was her reason. I just got finished saying when people want what they want because they want it. But the reason why that didn't jive with me is because when folks, women, women, at least the women that I've experienced, when black women, I don't know about any others because I don't experience the others, those other individuals, um, because they haven't talked to me directly. But I would imagine it's pretty much the same. When a woman is ready to leave her husband, is ready to leave a situation that is no longer serving her or is potentially harming her or stressing her or whatever, she leaves and goes with God. She doesn't leave safely, quote unquote safely. She doesn't leave when the conditions are right. I mean, they might be right like she got a new job or, you know, she knows that there's a place somewhere where she can stay or something like that. So they might have like some real like surface level um, right condition. But when a woman is out, a woman is out. I know my 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 own ex-wife left when she was ready to go. When she was ready to go, she was gone. There was no worrying about the finances. She was like, I'm going to just have to figure this out because I don't want to be here anymore. I know some other people. I know one other person in particular who was trying to wait it out until their children graduated from college. They were gone a month later, moved into their own apartment, and were just trying to figure it out on one income. Because when you're ready to go, you're ready to go. Because you're ready to go. When you're not ready to go, or you don't really even have any intention on going, you say what was said to me. And I knew that. I knew that as someone who had been on the the receiving end of someone, and I could see the intensity of my ex-wife's desire to be free, regardless of my hold on her. The desire was, was, it was fiery, and there was no desire to be free there. There was a desire to be comfortable, but not a desire to be free. And, I, and what I said to that statement about finances was, let's do your thing and let me work with you and let's set the world on fire. I don't know if that was a naive statement or not. I mean, we were drinking. I mean, but I wasn't drunk. To which she said, nah, I got I to gotta make this money by myself and do this by myself and do this my way. And then she ordered another drink. And something shifted and broke inside me when she said that because I did take it as rejection. I took it as a rejection of me. I took it as 
not hearing what I'm saying, not hearing my plea, not hearing the fact that I want to be with you for real, for real. And it wasn't that she put her husband before me. I think that would be the obvious thing. I think she put comfort before me, which was probably even more stinging for me that she did that. So I left the dinner changed. I still enjoyed her company. I still enjoyed her friendship. I still enjoyed the sound of her voice. I still enjoyed her laughter, which was so robust, but I didn't feel the same. I was broken inside. Like the, the thing that I was, that, that rope that we had, that, you know, you, you have a rope when you're building with someone, you know, a rope is what, cords, cords that are bound together and, you know, intertwined and so on and so forth. The cords were breaking into individual cords. So where it was getting tight and strong and durable. And, you know, the more you pull on a rope, the more durable it gets when it's a cord. You know, when it's multiple braided cords, the, the tighter and stronger it gets. Because those cords unraveled in that moment into their individual parts, they began to snap and I began to cut them. Wide open, wide loose, the mistake was made. Love slipped from my lips, dripped down my chin and landed in her lap, then slid between her thighs, and us became new. Now me non-clairvoyant and loving and grown made me the fool. She couldn't be true, and quite honestly, Eric, neither could you. She wanted me the way she wanted me and pretty much let me know we were making a mockery of something so incredible, beautiful. I honestly did love her. So love rained down on me, down on me. But I stopped the rain before it turned to true pain. The best way I knew how. Closure came on a rooftop deck several weeks later we were walking around after having lunch, cracking jokes, laughing the afternoon away in a way that was so natural and so comfortable that it was such a shame that it was, in my opinion, wrong. So I took her up on this roof deck and we looked out over a portion of Atlanta. And I said, you know, <laughs> I had to do things in a big way back then because I wasn't where I, I, I hadn't reached the level of maturity and wholeness where I could just tell someone the truth and have it be the truth. Whether I was in a car, in an alley, in the cereal aisle of a grocery store. So I took her up on this rooftop, this roof deck. We looked out over a portion of Atlanta and I said, you know, I'm a king. Or at least I'm trying to be. And if I'm a king, then I need to start acting like one. And I've kind of like fallen back on my ways. And I didn't say this easily. I was stuttering and stammering and talking in between stuff. And she said, so what are we doing? What do you want to do? Do you want to just stop? What are you trying to, what are you saying? Yeah, I think we need to stop because I'm a king. And I actually said that she was a queen as well. And we were both above it. But I think when I said that I didn't want to do this anymore and that I was a king, the listening stopped, especially because I heard it a few times afterwards that I declared myself a king and almost judgmentally dismissed her. That's not 
what I thought I was doing. I'm not saying that wasn't her experience, but that's not what I believed that I was doing. I thought I was elevating us both above our circumstances so that we could end in the future in a better space than where we were headed because we were headed to a place of no return. As long as she stayed married, as long as I was okay with her being married and me being okay with being on the side, we were going nowhere fast. The emotions were getting deeper. The connections were getting stronger. And it was leading to nowhere. I couldn't see a future with us because there was no place for me, that there was no place where I could occupy space. And snatching moments of her day, snatching evenings, snatching afternoons, scheduling time with her was not what I considered to be something that allowed me to occupy space in her life and vice versa. And after being in a marriage where I had kids first, then I got married, then my ex-wife, who was exceptionally exceptional in the workplace, was very busy, there rarely was time for me, at least not in the way that I would have liked. And then when there was time for me, I was resentful. And then I didn't do what I needed to do. I didn't get over myself so that I so that we could spend quality time. So there was always this constant friction conflict of me feeling like I never had enough and never was enough in the life of my ex-wife. I for damn sure wasn't going to repeat that willingly and walk into a space that didn't have my name on it. So I stuttered, I stammered, and with great theatrics, I ended things on a rooftop. Or so I intended. It took me several more tries after that day, but eventually we ended and transitioned back from lovers two good friends, or at least so I thought at the moment. This has been another episode of the Dating After Divorce Survival Guide. Thank you for listening as we close out the season. It has been my joy and my honor and my pleasure to serve as your host on this journey the journey of my life, the journey of my stepping back into the world of the living from the wasteland of divorce, the wasteland of emotional trauma, the wasteland of not knowing who I was as a person, as a child, as a teenager, as a young adult, as an adult, and then I guess I guess the term is actually middle ager. Don't feel like it, but you know, numbers don't lie. That is what I am. Don't feel it, but that is what I am on paper. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I hope that the words are helping. I hope the words, you know, I hope you're able to snag pieces of it for yourself and apply it to your own life. I hope that what I'm doing, you know, is helping you do things a little bit better so you don't make some of the mistakes that I made so that you can see some of the things that I didn't see coming so that you can check yourself when you feel certain things cropping up in you and don't allow yourself to act on them. Let my life, let this story, let these things that I tell you act as a warning, as a litmus test, as things to look out for. 
Now, of course, it's not going to apply directly to your situation because my situation is mine and yours is yours. But hopefully my testimony here has been somewhat of a help, some sort of help to you. I appreciate you. I thank you. And this has been a great season three. I'm not sure when this journey will end, but we, there definitely is going to be a season four. You can you can rest assured on that. Something I want to prepare everyone that's listening for is that every story must come to an end. Every journey does have a destination. And eventually there's a new journey that begins once you hit that destination. But the pursuit of getting better does hit a clearing. Eventually you get to a point where you realize that you're better, that you're whole. And there's no reason to talk about the things that happened in the past. There's no reason to talk about what was done to you. You give it away. You forgive it. You set it free like a bird. And then you live your life on your terms at your own pace. So with that, I bid you adieu. Be great, be wonderful, be incredible, be amazing, be powerful, be authentic, be true to you. Be kind to others. Be loving to yourself. Be well-intentioned. Be healthy. Be hopeful. Be wonderful. Be considerate with your words. Be conservative with your words. Be articulate with your words. Be kind with your words. Steer clear of trouble if you see trouble coming a mile away. I mean, it seems like it's fun on the front end, but it really never ends that way. With that said, I'd like to end with my favorite part. Give yourself grace. Give yourself peace. Give yourself room to grow and develop and to learn from your mistakes and to not beat yourself up when you make mistakes because these mistakes are leading to the ultimate, final, ever-changing version of you. Because there is no final version of you. You just continually evolve. But if you spend a lot of time hating on yourself because you're making mistakes, then you won't get anywhere further than the mistakes that you make. So, most importantly of all, be 1,000 trillion percent you.